Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Jason Palmer, science correspondent, and in this episode, we'll get a sneak preview of some of the stories in the upcoming Economist Technology Quarterly. From the approaches used by nuclear weapons inspectors to the future of 3D printing on Earth and, just maybe, in outer space. Here with me to discuss these stories are Oliver Morton, our briefings editor, and Paul Markilly, our innovation editor. Ollie, let's let's turn first to you. Uh, to stay one step ahead of governments trying to develop nuclear weapons covertly, inspectors have uh, turned to some new technologies. Now, I mean, usually what we've seen in the past is that you're effectively trying to catch the rumble when these things go off. But yeah, even, uh, even that's getting better, right? Yeah, no, we're very good. Or I say we rather loosely. People are very good now at catching the rumble when nuclear weapons go off. Um, there's a whole network of seismic detectors around the world. There are also ultrasound detectors which pick up very low frequency noise in the air and there are similar things for picking up low frequency noise under the water and it all adds up together to quite a remarkable sort of like not exactly hearing a pin drop but certainly hearing any decent sized nuclear test probably even if you do tricky things like exploding it inside a thing inside a cave so as to decouple the explosion from the rest of the world. And the great thing is that you can do science with all this stuff. You can uh, do science with the seismology, with the infrasound, with the ocean monitoring stuff. Uh, And people have discovered really interesting things. I mean, it's worth remembering that we know about gamma ray bursts in the cosmos because they were discovered with satellites that were looking for gamma rays from nuclear explosions. And the investigations kind of go the other way around because something of a new science called network analysis is also being brought to bear on this as well. Yeah, this is the problem that by and large, once people are doing nuclear testing, they tend to be fairly well along in their nuclear programs and for various reasons you might want to catch it earlier on. And so this is really using the sort of like massive big data techniques that have become quite common in intelligence work, especially since 9-11 and since people got huge pieces of iron with which to surveil lots of things and looking for patterns in the presence and absence of nuclear experts in various places, who's publishing, who's not publishing, have people moved to different places, and by matching together a lot of public and probably a lot of clandestinely gathered information, you can start putting up a picture of how a research organisation works and whether there's one coming into being in a particular area that you're worried about. It's hard to say whether that's going to have knock-on scientific effects in the sort of like sociology of innovation that you might compare to the the effects of the side effects of being able to detect nuclear blasts, but it probably does add something to global security, and that's not nothing. But coming back from the computer science, there are still even better.
better, cleverer ways to catch these kinds of operations with physics. Well, so it is claimed and may well prove to be the case. For instance, a particularly far-fetched possibility that people are discussing is using neutrinos to pick up the nuclear reactors in which plutonium, which is one of the ways of making a bomb, can be made. And since neutrinos are famously incredibly elusive, this is a pretty out there sort of suggestion. But it is true that you know there's a neutrino detector in Japan that's designed to detect neutrinos from nuclear power stations. Unfortunately, all the nuclear power stations it would detect have been closed down for most of the time that it's been running. So it hasn't really done much on those, along those lines. Why can't it catch neutrinos from the other side of the world? They get well, cleanly it, through? Indeed, no? indeed. What's really interesting about that particular detector, since you ask, is that it detects neutrinos created by nuclear fissions within the Earth's mantle and thus gives an independent way of seeing how much heat is being generated within the Earth. So that's a really interesting thing for it to do. It's not much help when you come to uh, nuclear proliferation, but it's conceivable. And the Americans have some prototype stuff here. It's conceivable, I suppose, that if you had a huge amount of money and a lot of neighboring countries that wanted in on the game, you could ring an adversary with detectors trying to see the neutrinos from their nuclear program. It's pretty out there, but I personally think that almost any program that has a neutrino detector in it is preferable to one that doesn't. And there is uh, talk in this piece also of what's called laser enrichment, which somehow is going to frustrate all of yeah, these this new, is, new efforts. Yeah, this is the left hand taking away from what the right hand is doing. I mean, at the moment, one of the things you need to do for most nuclear programs, not for all nuclear programs, is you need to enrich the uranium, so make it more bomby. Um, <laughs> and bombishness is normally um, provided by centrifuges, uh, which are big, clunky things that move around a lot, have a lot of difficult parts and... Turn out to be pretty trackable, really. Yeah, can be trackable. Though, you know, if you make them in your own country, you're probably frustrating some of that network tracking a a bit. But uh, anti-proliferation people have have a sense they know what they're doing with centrifuges. There's also the possibility of enriching nuclear fuel with lasers, which could be useful for making commercial nuclear fuel, but could also be useful, like all commercial uh, enrichment programs, for making bomb stuff. And and bombier stuff. Yeah, bomb stuff and the bombiest stuff. I, I've never fully understood why people think it's a good idea to pursue this because nuclear fuel is a really quite small amount of the cost of running a nuclear power station. And it's absolutely fundamental to making a nuclear weapons. And as someone that we quote in this story points out, although you may classify the details of how you're doing laser enrichment, the very fact that people think that laser enrichment can be made into a plausible, profitable way of making nuclear fuel kind of tells what I believe are known as bad actors, that there's some bad acting to be done here, that laser enrichment could be the way forward. And laser enrichment could happen on a really small scale. I mean, those big galleries full of centrifuges that you see in the Iranian nuclear program that was the subject of the deal, very, very big, heavy machinery sort of stuff. Laser enrichment, quite possibly not so much and might require a whole new way of looking for it. Ali, thanks very much for, for that. Paul, turning now to 3D printing, which we've certainly heard a lot about, but this time it's it's breaking out of the box, as it were. We're talking about 3D printing things bigger than a, well, the 3D printers that we've talked about before. Indeed, we're talking about buildings, printing things in the construction industry. But building things is an additive process. It's like pouring concrete. and uh, You add a layer of bricks. You add a layer of bricks. So this is just a mechanized way of doing that with much more precision. And in fact, some of the prototype 3D printers that are being used to make buildings look like big bags that squeeze out icing onto cakes and you curl it around and you make these structures so you can make a complete structure or as they are in China, you can make prefabricated sections of a building with these additive techniques and then take them out there and put together an apartment block as one company has done. 
Well, there were those amazing pictures of making the Viaduct de Mio in in France, where they basically extruded the entire road deck from the side of a canyon and ran it over the pillars in the middle to make a finished bridge. Well, it's the picture cool. with this piece doesn't look entirely different from that. It's sort of robots building the very bridge that they're sitting on. This is the sort of thing exactly, that exactly, yeah, yeah. I mean, these are industrial robots with laser welding heads on, and they basically instead of just a blob of weld, they keep welding, and that blob turns into a rod which gets longer and longer, and they. They make beautiful filigree structures, and uh, that particular company, MX3D, are going to be printing a footbridge across the canal in Amsterdam with this technology. Right, and it's not just sort of the blob and wait for the blob to set and another blob and so on. I see also there's this contour crafting business. So there's something more than just squirting out a blob of stuff. There's shaping the stuff after the fact. Yeah, that's a different technique. That's more the using the stuff out of the bag technique, the icing technique. But instead of just having little gobules of stuff that you can circle around, they use paddles and shapers to make the shape itself. So it forms it into a more recognizable structure. I, I wanted to know, Paul, uh, mm. why would you want to build a bridge like this other than to show that you can? It is largely to show that you can. and it is Surely a there's a better reason than that. <laughs> it, is a, it is a demonstration product. But looking at the design of the bridge, you couldn't make this with conventional manufacturing techniques because the optimization software have come up with a structure that looks very filigree-like, very natural, bone-like, that you could only really make with an additive technique. You couldn't That kind of thing couldn't be a, cast or extruded. You couldn't really or... cast it. You couldn't really cut it. You couldn't machine it. It's, it's very difficult to make that way. And that's one of the reasons why you want to use 3D printing these days is that you can use A, materials that don't succumb very easily to machining or cutting, and you can make shapes that are very difficult to make. And because this is printing the bridge in one go, it's not making thousands of sections that you then have to manually bolt together. So there is, it's a demonstration project, but it's demonstrating a technology that really has some way to go. I think one of the interesting things, though, there is just the, which you bring up in the filigree point, is just the sheer aesthetics of this. I mean, one of the most interesting things I ever see about uh, 3D printing is the stuff being done by Factomate in in Spain, where they use these huge uh, materialized 3D printers to build artworks for artists. So, for instance, big sculptures by Mark Quinn and things like that, but making sculpture that you couldn't possibly make any other way. I think it, although I asked the dully pragmatic question of what's it good for, I think we should also remember that it's good for making beautiful stuff. Yeah, it's true. It, It can make great jet engine components or it can make beautiful dresses, wonderful printed glass, a new technique out of MIT we wrote about recently. And it can, the fashion industry has jumped all over this. And if you're a jewelry maker, you can use this technology at home to make beautiful pieces of jewelry akin to the lost wax casting technique, which is over a thousand years old. Um, I'll bring it back to the dully pragmatic, though. I I understand this can also be used, well, in terms of the things you can't do with anything else. What about taking all of this, Paul, to space? Space is an ideal place to do it. One of the things is shipping bricks and concrete and things out to make structures on the moon or on Mars is prohibitively expensive. So if you can use the materials already there with a machine that can gather up this material, process it into some kind of oozy stuff that you can then secrete out to make uh, landing pads and shelters and structures to avoid radiation, um, that's an ideal use of 3D printer. And indeed, there's a number of projects underway at this. There's there's a NASA one and there's one for the European Space. 
Space Agency that are looking at if we're going to build structures in space additive manufacturing is the way to do it. There's a lovely short story by Cory Doctorow in a, an anthology called Hieroglyph about a crowdsourced attempt to put a 3D printer, a trundling 3D printer on the moon just to make building materials. And the lovely thing about it is it's a sort of like pure faith play into the future where there's no th- crowdsourced plan to get people up there. They just think someday someone will be up there and doesn't the moon look more interesting if you know there's a kind of mobile brickworks on it? Well, no reason we wouldn't see with what we're seeing in this piece this week such a thing happening on Earth first, right? It's just passing by a giant building site where there are some lonely robots just slowly and quietly making bricks. Right. Well, thank you very much for that, Paul. And, and thank you, Ollie. I'm afraid that's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, go to economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.